0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to MIR Meets. Dylan Matthews is a senior correspondent for Vox. One of the things that I love about his writing is, one of the, is also one of the things that makes it kind of hard to introduce him right now, which is that he never really sticks to one beat. He talks about a wide swath of issues, whether it be effective altruism, tax credits, tax cuts, the general politicking of trying to get a bill passed, malaria, and so on and so forth. So we talk about a lot of those issues here. One of the main, I, I would argue that the main crux of this episode probably has to do with understanding the intricacies of the US tax system. But we also talk about several other issues as well. For example, we spend like, we spend the first like 10 minutes of the episode bantering about Biden's resolution to the U.S.'s debt ceiling crisis, because um, this episode was recorded a few weeks ago, earlier on in the month, once there had just been a completed deal um, and a resolution to that. Um, so th- we talk about that and then we talk about taxes. And towards the end, we talk a little bit about some of the more interesting aspects of the effective altruism movement and his views on that. Hope you enjoy. How, so how are you doing?
1: Uh, I can't complain. I uh, I expected that to be a bigger deal and bigger uh, part yeah. of my life than it wound up being. But yeah, uh-huh.
0: it's it's well, it's like proper anti-climax. Like, did you read that Iglesias piece in the New York Times about like Biden's communication strategy? I think he makes a really great point about how like sometimes anti-climax, it's not as satiatory for us, but maybe it's better for the greater good.
1: Yeah. And I mean, something I've heard from from congressional Republicans is, you know, when we dealt with Obama, he would like give us a lecture about why we're wrong. And then you would like come to a deal and Biden just skips that part because he's been doing this for like 50 years.
0: Yeah. It's like we'll we'll allow like this huge own the lib section on TV as long as the policies are substantive for us.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot less uh, concern about um, media narratives and much more about getting a deal done. I mean, I'll yeah. say this. I've, I think I've said this in other media, but um, I just remember talking to to Biden staffers like Ted Kaufman, Simone Sanders, that kind of those kind of people, uh, summer of 2020, and and they were talking a big game about how Biden had dealt with all these Republicans and these like really right wing, like even segregationist Republicans in his time in the Senate, and, and they were going to cut all these big deals. Um, and i thought that was total bullshit and uh they were completely underestimating how intransigent, uh how intransigent uh the the senate gop house gop were going to be and they were going to filibuster everything and here we are and they have an infrastructure bill and they have the chips act and they have uh they have this debt ceiling bill which uh, was obviously not like a collaboration in the same way but Is a deal that they they got done, and uh, yeah, I've been grateful to be wrong about that, and that he he genuinely seems more talented at cutting that kind of deal than Clinton or uh, or Obama were. Yeah,
0: maybe it's the sort of thing where like Obama had like a very unique identity, such that like he felt so much more pressure, and maybe that like caused him to sort of think that he needed that type of rhetoric, which unfortunately ended up being counterproductive from a policy standpoint, even if that wasn't the intention.
1: Yeah. And I, I think some of this is racialized, right? Like there there was some portion of of the GOP base, and I, I won't hazard how large a portion, but some portion that just like did not think Obama was a legitimate president. And that made it harder for, for them to cut deals. And so I don't know that this is entirely up to like the personal prowess of the presidents. But like Biden was in the Senate for 36 years. You probably learn a thing or two doing that.
0: Yeah, because, well, then maybe, like, it it sort of makes me think, so, like, the natural inclination is to, like, justifiably give Biden so much credit for, like, not just the amazing legislation he's passed, but, like, the way that he's been able to cut deals in the background. But maybe it's the sort of thing where, like, to keep this self-sustaining, to keep his presidency good, we sort of have to, like we have to not only adopt like elements of David Shorism, but we also have to like not constantly toot our own horn about how amazing his accomplishments are, because then the less we talk about them, the less they seem (laughs) to be as impactful as they actually are.
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's the strategy he and his his team has taken. I I don't know about him. Um, he, He will certainly tout certain accomplishments, but like, uh, if you go to events that places like the Roosevelt Institute and other places that that uh, employ former Biden staffers who have ex-staff now in the administration, they'll talk a big game about how all these bills and they'll sort of include partisan legislation like the IRA and American Rescue Act uh, along with bipartisan stuff like chips and infrastructure, but they'll talk about it as a whole as part of this new industrial policy and um, they'll they'll really talk it up. And so I don't know that there's a coordinated like comms strategy to downplay things, but um there's there's definitely an attempt to frame it in a kind of transpartisan way um and uh sort of highlight people like like Warren Cass and groups like American Compass and American Affairs on the right that are interested in this kind of like industrial policy attitude. Wait,
0: was was Orrin cast the twenty twelve GOP autopsy guy, or am I thinking of someone else?
1: I think he was involved with that. He was he was a senior policy person for Romney, so it would make sense. Uh, Lanty Chen, I think, was the other person who was who was involved in that.
0: Yeah, that was the like he was Mitt Romney's advisor for the twenty twelve election, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were both in that team. Cass has taken a sort of interesting trajectory where he's. Uh, become like a real doomer about middle-class econ stuff um, in ways that infuriate economists I know who are like very careful about data because he'll like create some arbitrary budget for people that's uh, that's like a, a house of a certain size, a car of a certain size, uh, certain childcare, duh, 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 and then sort of use this, this metric he's made up to show that the middle class has never had it worse. And um, it's misleading for... X, Y, Z million reasons. Um, Like it ignores categories of things like food that used to be like a third of Americans' budget and isn't anymore because the price of food has gone down dramatically over the last 50 years. Um, And so like, yes, rent is up, but all these other things are down. And, And if you only look at rent, you miss that. Anyway, this is a very short summary of 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 a long paper that someone that is not the subject of this podcast wrote. <laughs> yeah, um, this is
0: really so. ironic because, like, I was originally bringing you on to talk about taxes, but we ended up going on, like, this five-minute, like, I haven't even introduced you yet, but we already went on this five-minute spiel about the debt ceiling.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I- it's related to taxes, I suppose, and there's there was fewer changes to taxes in it than I was anticipating. But yeah, but yeah, but, well, uh, like
0: the, the work requirements in SNAP are t- still terrible, in my opinion.
1: Uh, yeah, no, it's bad policy. Um, it's it's also sort of extending an existing bad policy um, more than than introducing a brand new one. Um, but but yeah, no, it's it's not it's not a bill that you would want to pass, all else being equal, without getting a two year debt ceiling extension out of it. But given that you got that, and that you got expansions for veterans and homeless people, um, not a, not a terrible deal, in my view.
0: Yeah, but I guess since we're on this subject, do you foresee like Democrats actually putting an end to like the debt ceiling Constant, like the whole thing about constantly kicking the barrel down the road? Do you think like, would you foresee them like, finally resolving that in a few years if they were to have like a, like a Senate and House majority then?
1: I could see, I think some of the younger senators, people like Brian Schatz and, and Chris Murphy are enthusiastic about that. Someone asked Schatz on Twitter because he's one of the, the few senators who checks his Twitter and will respond to people. It's sort of why they, they didn't uh, use reconciliation in the fall of 2022 to raise the debt ceiling amount to some arbitrary number, like $15 quadrillion dollars. Um, And he said they just didn't have the votes, which makes sense that, that at that point there were 50 democratic senators, they needed, uh, both mansion and cinema mansion is very in favor of the debt ceiling. Um, it makes sense to me that, uh, that they just like, didn't have a quorum there. And I think it's also, there's sometimes a dynamic where there are other senators who kind of are iffy on something that Biden wants. Uh, and they kind of use mansion and cinema as fig leaves um like i think there's there's occasionally things that like gene shaheen or tom carper are kind of like "Eh, i don't really want to do that (laughs) um but they don't want to to get mansion or cinema's reputation so they can kind of use them as shields um so i think some of that was happening um so i think there are people who would want to do that my question is like the whip count and i don't know what the whip count is my guess would be that it's somewhere in the 30s and 40s of of democrats who would vote to get rid of the debt ceiling given the opportunity um if you believe what david shore tells us about senate odds in the future i don't see there being a majority to get rid of it anytime soon um but David was really uh, pessimistic about the midterms for Democrats and was wrong about that. And well, to be fair, a lot
0: of different coalitions were wrong about the midterms. Like even Greg Sargent, who was very, like, um, who strongly disagrees with the shore in some areas, was also uh, pessimistic. Oh, yeah. I, yeah.
1: I was very wrong about that, to be clear. Like, I, um, Zach Beecham, where I work with at Vox, uh, was saying that he thought Fetterman would win the night of the the, the election and we were all in the office and I was like that's ridiculous like Fetterman is toast um and yeah I was just totally wrong about that
0: yeah I remember I remember how relieved I was when I like saw those results they were so much better than I was expecting um so anyway after that like like going on for several minutes I guess I'll just <laughs> um like um Dylan Matthews thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast
1: of course it's it's my pleasure love yeah. you till. Yeah. Well, wait, say that again. No, I, I love McGill. Uh, for, for a long time, I uh, I was on a, a trivia team in D.C. And our, our trivia team name was McGill just because a one member of the team went there. But another member was just wearing a McGill sweater. And the people running Bar Trivia just called us as a group McGill for years. So I, despite having no affiliation with it personally, have a lot of, of pride in the name McGill.
0: That makes me really proud. Maybe one of these mm-hmm. days I should just like hand people like free McGill sweaters so that <laughs> they can continue to spread the good word of McGill.
1: Yeah. Fine institution. Yeah.
0: So could you um, could you explain a little bit about your role in, like as a senior editor in Vox, like what it means on a day-to-day basis and also what future perfect is.
1: Sure. Um, so I think I'm a senior correspondent, so I don't edit anything, uh, which I think is good for everyone involved given uh, what me, my past experience as an editor and, and uh, comparing my skills at that to writing, um, they're very different skill sets, and I, I'm more comfortable as a writer. Um, I I've never really had a hard beat, uh, but the closest I've come is is my role in the section called Future Perfect, which you mentioned. So Future Perfect is a group of about ten people within Vox. Uh, we. Are foundation funded, uh, so we, we are a little bit insulated from the needing to sell ads and, and get views, um, which lets us have a little more freedom in what we want to write about. And what we want to write about is uh, sort of our, our very vague and broad mandate is to write about ways to make the world better. And so, in practice, that has included writing a lot of stuff on global poverty and global health, uh, writing a lot about animals, uh, since we view that as as a, an area where uh there's a lot of injustices now uh and not enough coverage of them uh we try to write about what what we thought were low probability risks like uh when we launched in 2018 we we ran articles about uh, preventing pandemics and uh preventing risks from uh advanced ais with near human abilities and those seem much less like outlandish risks now. Um, but uh but it's been something that's baked into us. So I, I write about all those things. I've never been able to to stick to one beat. Um you asked me on here to talk about taxes. And I think my background going back to when I worked at the Washington Post has been writing about tax and budget policy. So that that's kind of my first love and I've I've kept that up even as I try to write more about stuff like global health and animals and uh AI and pandemic risk.
0: But I guess when it comes to uh, like future perfect, uh, since you gave a little bit of a rundown of it, you mentioned how like you didn't. It wasn't really. It didn't have to answer to the whims of ad revenue. Do you feel like it helped to avoid audience capture in a way that it might have had otherwise?
1: I think it helped a little bit. There, there's always going to be a degree of audience capture just because. Like, the reason you're doing this is you want people to to read articles. And so you notice who's reading certain articles and and who's not. And subjectively, I found that that animals are oddly the thing that you can get people most exercised about. Um, Animal activists read, vegans read, um, and you can get pretty decent traffic from that. Um, I've never been able to get anyone to read an article about malaria. Um, I care a lot about eradicating malaria. I think it's really, really important um but i've never figured out a way to to make that penetrate with people is
0: is it like harder to get people to read than
1: economics oh way harder like people read economics stuff people care about unemployment and inflation and um diseases in faraway countries is just it, it's a tough sell in my experience um and so i think th- what i view our freedom is as is that if there's like a big report on um on um, sort of, or if a new malaria vaccine comes out, or there's a new report on how vaccination compares to bed nets or our chemo prevention measures as, as ways to prevent malaria deaths, um, we can and do write about that. And uh, we can look at the numbers and say, uh, hey, no one's going to read this, but because we have this alternate source of funding, we can also say, well, I don't care. <laughs> like this, this matters. We also have an audience of policymakers who might be in a position to do something about this. And so this might only be read by like 500 people um but if one of those 500 people is in a position to do something that's worth it and we're we're furthering this mission that we get grant funding to further um so that that i think has been um been a nice dynamic and and different from some of the incentives you face outside of of that kind of funding arrangement and we're also lucky in that our our funder is is pretty hands-off and and Trusts our editorial judgment, and we uh, have strong guarantees of editorial independence as part of all of our art grants.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely say like some of my favorite pieces from both you and, I guess, in the broader journalistic ecosphere are just like pieces where you can tell it's not really trying to like cater to the whims of its audience at all. If that makes any sense.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's hard to do, and I definitely fail at it times. Um, but uh, but yeah no, trying to challenge your audience and and go outside their interest zone. Yeah, um, it also seems like a way to have counterfactual interest. Like if I read an art- article about how Donald Trump uh, is uh, doesn't seem entirely on the level, um, our audience will obviously agree with that and be like, yeah. But I won't have changed anybody's minds um, if I get them to think about some topic that they're not ordinarily thinking about. That seems like more counterfactually helpful
0: it's like the lower the salience of an issue the easier it is to change people's minds about it
1: definitely yeah No, i think that's definitely true
0: yeah so let's let's let, let's hope that we can change people's minds about <laughs> the u.s tax system right now sure. hopefully that's a pretty low salience issue um so i'm just gonna quote one of your articles right now um reporting on congressional fights about taxes gives you an excellent view of why the code is the way it is from policymakers' point of view. That's a good vantage point for understanding how the co- code came to be, but a bad one for understanding how well the code is working. So how well do you think the code is working?
1: Um, I, I don't think the, the US tax code works super well. I think if I was, I was giving it a grade, I would say like D plus, C minus. It's not the worst tax code uh the personal income tax in the us is is quite progressive um you could argue it should be more progressive but uh it it does do a good job of concentrating taxes on on high earners um i think we we have a working withholding system it's not as good as it should be and we can talk about some of the ways in which it's not as good as it should be but there are countries that don't have that and and that's something that we've we've kind of mastered um but uh but yeah there are a lot of uh, a lot of deficiencies and a lot of just sort of administrative deficiencies that whatever you whatever your ideal tax rate is whether you think taxes are too high or too low on this or that group of people just like the way we implement the tax code uh i think lags far behind pure countries
0: yeah and like you've mentioned in one of your articles that a lot of that like a lot of your experience in this regard comes from like volunteering to do other people's taxes. Um, so to quote you again, being a tax preparer means asking total strangers about some of the most intimate aspects of their personal lives repeatedly. So what did that experience tell you about the the somewhat convoluted <laughs> nature of the U.S.'s tax system?
1: Yeah, so I think one, one thing I learned from covering policy is that uh, policymakers often like to tweak the tax code um, to further this or that goal. Um, and, uh, and so if they want to promote marriage, they try to do that in the tax code. If they want to uh, promote adoption, they create an adoption tax credit. Um, but what this means in practice is that your your tax return um, becomes more complicated. Uh, that in a lot of other countries, I mean, Germany, Japan, and, and the UK are probably the leaders in this regard. Um, most people don't have to file tax returns because the government can just estimate how much they owe from their wage statements from their employer. Um, but that's true because your taxes don't depend on who you're married to, uh, how many kids you have in your home, uh, what, uh, what your childcare arrangements are, uh, if you have a student loan interest that you are paying that, that you might want to deduct. It just involves asking a lot of invasive questions about, about people's home lives um, because we do all these things through the tax code. So I think some some people have a hard time generalizing outside their, their home situation. And one thing that sort of the richer you are, the likelier you are to be in sort of a steeple two-parent households uh, where people got married before they had kids. And uh, you're less, as you get richer, you're less likely to have sort of a complex mixed family. Um, and, and so I think sometimes I talk to people who are kind of upper middle class and they're like, yeah, I need to know about my wife and my kids, but like, who cares? It's simple. It's sometimes not simple. Sometimes um, one parent has uh, goes to prison or has uh, drug problems and loses custody. Sometimes someone's being raised by a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle. Um, sometimes uh, someone is spends nine months in one one state and three months in another state and uh, tax benefit from one state uh, or the other and you're not sure which which ones they qualify for. Um, like real people's lives are complicated, and uh, and you need to know all those complications if you're going to do people's taxes, and that gets really invasive.
0: Yeah. Um, so, like, I'm just going to give one example that you gave. I'm just quoting you again. These cr- like like about the differences, like the subtle but important differences between different like tax credits the a the aotc for instance bars students with felony drug convictions from collecting the credit which the llc does not but the aotc can also be used for the cost of books and materials that are helpful but not explicitly required for classes which the llc cannot so like what are some of the reasons and i think this might dovetail a little bit with like the way that the political popularity of certain measures have changed over time. But could you talk a little bit about why a lot of the tax system, whether it comes with um, like tax credits or just the way that you need to file it, could you talk a little bit about like why it's so complicated in the present? Like what sort of forces led it to be this way?
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of it is that some of these are individual measures that get added as per a specific legislative pushes and not, and, and there's not really any incentive for policymakers because they don't sort of bear the brunt of these complexities to try to simplify things. So the AOTC, which is the the American opportunity tax credit is a great example of this. Um, that was actually an attempt at consolidating some existing credits and expanding them that passed in the 2009 stimulus. So it passed sort of in part as a way to stimulate the economy uh after the 2008 financial crisis and and because obama just like wanted to uh add more money for college um they they were designing it in that particular moment for that particular crisis um i don't know exactly why they chose to do it that way as opposed to just expanding pell grants i suspect part of it is they wanted to give money to middle class uh who were not, uh, poor enough to, to qualify for, uh, Pell Grants. Uh, but that's just been, it was, it was scheduled to, to expire. And then they, they got a deal to make it permanent. Uh, and now we're just stuck with it. The, the, uh, this was, it was written pretty quickly, uh, in a few weeks in early 2009. Um, it has now been around for over 14 years. Uh, and there just isn't a moment when congress has sat down and said does it really make sense that we have uh three or four different tax code provisions for higher education as well as Pell grants as well as subsidized student loans um there's it's it's always sexier to like add benefits than it is to um than it is to consolidate and and try to streamline uh another thing is is you you tweak these things to try to get votes or win, win over uh, people on the fence. Like my guess is that the rule that you can't get AOTC, if you have a felony drug conviction, like getting the the stimulus across the line was really tough. They needed three Republican senators uh, and the negotiations with, with Susan Collins and Olympia snow and Arlen specter uh, were really, uh, really intense and, and granular. And I, and there was a massive recession and they desperately needed to pass a stimulus bill of some kind and so i can imagine obama saying like you know what like I, this is a dumb provision but like who cares like I'll, I'll i'll agree to this if this is what it takes for susan collins to vote for the stimulus and like in that moment i don't blame them like that is the correct uh trade-off <laughs> to make in that moment but it does mean that you're left with this like Clutch of a program uh, that forces you to ask like insanely invasive questions about people's personal lives.
0: Yeah, like a lot of a lot of the the tax credit system in the US just like doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But like, then that makes me wonder how much of it is just like political popularity and how much of that is like them assuming political popularity where none exists. So like, I'll I'll give an example, you know, how the American Rescue Plan came with an expanded child tax credit that did unfortunately expire after a year. Um, but like during that year, it like drastically reduced child poverty. But you know, the whole thing um, about how like the, the child tax credit was only given to like for example, 90% of eligible people because they didn't actually give it to people that were too poor to file taxes, even though the money was already like quarantined off and like paid so that they could have given it to those people. Was that like a feature that was just there because of political inertia or was that necessary for Joe Manchin to sign on to it?
1: Yeah, I think some of it is 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 particular people and answering particular arguments. I, I don't know that specific case well, but but here's, here's one that's maybe illustrative. Um, uh, that I think I mentioned in the piece that you've been quoting from. Uh, the uh, In 1983, there was uh, an effort to make the, the earned income credit available for people without children or with, without uh, custodial children. Um, it's also available for parents who aren't the primary um, primary custodian of the child. Um, the big counter-arguments against this um so the big counter arguments against making this available to childless people were um, some people uh, were worried that it would just go to retirees who didn't need it. It would um, uh, it would go to um, uh, people over 65 who are who still working or gain pension income. And, and that would sort of balloon the cost for no good reason. Some people were worried it was going to go to like college students and uh, high schoolers who were, were working a little bit and, uh, were from wealthy families, and that seemed bad. And so to, to cut a deal, um, Charlie Rangel, who was the big guy pushing this in Congress, uh, agreed to, to limit it to people from age 25 to age 64. So that's, uh, that's a case where he was responding to real political currents. I don't know if those political currents were responding to something real in public opinion. I don't know if it was that these of moderate Democrats and Republicans he was trying to win over were like genuinely thought this would be unpopular and they would see a lot of stories about how it was going to like beach bum kids in college. um, Or whether they were just thinking just for themselves, like, I don't think it's a good idea to give money to those kinds of people. Um, And, and I want to target this more directly. I don't know how much of of one it was versus the other. Um, But, uh, but it's definitely true that some of these complexities are, are trying to trying to optimize for um winning over specific people in congress
0: which like which one do you think would have been better do you think it would have been better if they like assumed there was a political roadblock that didn't exist or that they had a moral objection
1: um i don't know if i would call it moral but just like yeah i think i think politicians in my experience are really risk averse and so like if there's a five percent chance that there's a story about how you voted for a bill to give money to, to college students who are like sleeping on the beach, um, then they're going to be really, really worried about that. Um, even if it's it's a small, um, if it's low odds. And correspondingly, there's not really a big benefit for them voting for it. That like this mostly goes to poor people, poor people don't vote as much. Um, this is not the thing that's going to make or break their reelection. And so what you need to prove to them is that it's not going to hurt. Um, and so if there's anything that seems like even vaguely plausible as a, a path for it to politically hurt them, that's going to take on uh, a lot of importance in their minds. Um, and yeah, so I think that's a really tough dynamic. And again, is, is part, of, part of the difficulty in trying to get good legislation through for, for low-income people is that there's, there's an asymmetry where they can get hammered if it's unpopular but probably won't get rewarded if it's super popular.
0: Yeah, which is really unfortunate. But you mentioned that you've you mentioned, like in your experience, politicians tend to be really risk averse. Do you think it's a product of like the way that like trying to pass legislation in the US that often favors status quo bias? Or do you think the causality is reversed and that like um, risk averse politicians end up not really passing that much?
1: Um. So I think, i think they're they're additive so it's hard to to change anything um uh so there's there's just institutional biases they're um um they're built into the way the u.s system is structured that that are not built into the way that say the canadian system is structured like i think it's there is status quo bias just because it's always easier to not pass something through parliament than it is to pass something through parliament but once Justin Trudeau and the liberal government agree that they want to do something and they can get enough, um, NDP or, or, uh, other party members to vote for it. They, they've got a majority. Um, they, that's just a lot easier than the assembly and winning coalition in Congress. Um, so there's that, but I think, yeah, there's, uh, you don't get far in politics if you take tons of like you have to take some risks you have to run for office in the first place but people really like to get reelected. um they understand that they have a big incumbency advantage and that anything they do that sort of upsets the public understanding of who they are and that that alienates some audience even if it pleases some other audience just sort of it adds risk um it adds variance uh and you don't you don't like variance um, if you're in a position where you're almost guaranteed re-election if you do nothing. Um, so I think the, the personal incentives layer onto the structural incentives to sort of result in something in, in a situation where there's not, uh, there's, there's not a lot of incentive uh, for, for change
0: yeah, it's it's interesting to note the way that a lot of these forces are self-reinforcing. <laughs> but to to go back to the the endlessly fascinating topic of taxes, um what like so you cited a study from Leibman and Ramsey about the main reasons why the u s. can't automatically like do people's taxes in the same way that like the u k. or Japan might. So could you explain to the audience? some of the main reasons they discovered for why we can't live in a world where the U.S.'s government like does people's taxes automatically?
1: Sure. So I think... Uh, uh, I don't have the paper in front of me, so I, I, I'm taking this off from memory, but um, one is uh, uh, the way that we treat child benefits. Uh, most countries have a, a pretty consolidated benefit per child. Uh, there isn't a complicated phase-in system for it um it goes to, to every child or almost every child um, as sort of a flat payment that's just a lot simpler than the the massive the child care credit the child credit the earned income credit all that um so that's part of it uh another part is um other countries will often tax capital income at the source so in the u.s if you have income from capital gains if you uh sold a house over a certain amount or, or sold stocks um if you have interest income dividend income um that just goes into your ordinary tax return in a lot of countries they'll have a flat rate something like 20 25 and just when you sell a stock that gets taken out and sent directly so you don't have to worry about it as part of your tax return and, and that makes our code more complicated relative to countries that do that Um, A third thing is uh, deductions that are um, sort of obscure to the people doing the withholding. Uh, So uh, charitable deductions are a good example. Um, The government doesn't know what I've donated to charity until I tell them. Um, And so that makes it hard for them to know uh, my ultimate tax burden if I'm taking that deduction. Um, A contrasting system would be one like uh, the UK uses where... Uh, they have a fund where if you donate to a, a registered charity, they'll just give you a, a, a cent, set percentage of it back. Um, and it's outside the tax code. So it's not something that, that the government needs to know for taxes, but you can get a, a reimbursement for giving to charity. And I think their their mortgage interest uh, subsidy, I think, works in a similar way. Um, but the most important one that that Liebman and, and Ramsey identified is... Uh, that we have joint rather than individual taxation that married couples file as a unit, as opposed to as two separate units. And that means that if you want to accurately withhold taxes for people, everyone's employer has to know not just sort of what their employee is making, but what their employee's spouse is making. And that's just like, obviously unworkable. Um, You, you, you don't want companies to know that much about your personal life, um, but b. uh, it, it just is, is a degree of information sharing that's that's not has not been implemented and probably is not implementable, um, and so countries that have more more rational and easy to use tax systems typically just tax individuals as individuals, um, and that complicates some things because sometimes, you know, you you're as a couple you get like an inheritance or something, and so how much of that is one person's versus the other. Um, I think part of the reason for joint taxation was that people were were worried about income shifting within households to try to minimize taxes. Um, that just seems like a much smaller problem than the problems created by, by joint taxation. Um, just one of which is uh, it really, it seems to empirically really discourage women's labor force participation. Uh, that uh, you... If you're adding income de facto over a male spouse's income then the marginal tax rate on uh on the female spouse's income in a heterosexual couple uh is is somewhere like can be like 20 30 percent rather than starting at zero percent if they're just filing on their own because it's added on top um and so it it was set up in a time when there was sort of a, a single earner presumption, and and women were assumed to be homemakers, and it is set up to incentivize uh, that that kind of lifestyle, which is just not how a lot of modern families work. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's really really good reasons, even apart from tax administration, to move toward individual taxation, um, but. Uh, it's it's absolutely necessary if you want a uh, an automated tax system like the UK's or Germany's or Japan's.
0: Well said, um, but yeah. So, segueing back to the way that you you've mentioned that like a lot of the like the like the dumb intricacies of the US's tax system is stuff that you learn from volunteering to do other people's taxes for like the Volunteer Income Tax Association. So. Um this is a this is a bit of a pivot, but to what extent like did your decision to do other people's taxes to what extent was that influenced by your views on effective altruism?
1: Um so I think one thing I I, I took from the effective altruism world is that you should sort of judge the the marginal benefit of you doing something and that your your time is valuable, but that your money is also valuable. Um, and, and so I think there's a lot of kinds of like day-to-day volunteering, um, where I was kind of skeptical of, of how valuable that was relative to, to donate your money to something like, uh, I can't really like donate my time in a way that reduces deaths from preventable diseases in the developing world, because I do not live in the developing world. I, I guess I could. Fly to Haiti or Sub Saharan Africa and, and do volunteer work in that capacity. But then you're playing, paying for massive plane tickets when you could just donate to people in those countries who know the situation way better than I do. Um, or like probably, just
0: give money to Give Well or something. Yeah.
1: Right. I, that's kind of what I mean is like you give money to, to Against Malaria and then they like pay people in Uganda to go buy some bed nets and distribute them. And those people are way better at that than I would be. Um, and and so I was kind of skeptical. I think I was sold on tax volunteering. This, the, this, the quantity of money is really high um, that you you can get people thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, it seems like they would be getting less money if they either chose not to file, in which case they don't get any money, or if they filed through a paid preparer who will often take 20, 30%. Um, so the service itself is kind of actually giving them thousands of dollars that they would not otherwise have um my impression from volunteering is that it's genuinely limited by the number of people doing it that um when we're busy we're really really busy and we genuinely cannot get to everyone who needs our help doing their taxes Uh, which implies to me that adding more preparers uh does result in more people getting getting benefits and does results and more money going out the door to to low income people. So all this added together to make it look like just an unusually attractive and effective way to translate time into, to assistance for other people. Um, it's something I actually knew a little bit about because I'd been reporting on taxes. Um, it's something where you're counterfactually giving people a lot of money. Um, yeah, it, it, it Passed a lot of bars that most volunteering ideas did not seem to pass for me.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really fascinating answer. Um, but like to talk about the, those, like your views on effective altruism, a little bit. Um, so this is this is another pivot. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you sort of saw a little bit of yourself in Sam Bankman Fried? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's a, it's
1: a it's a complete like it's, it's a, br- a yeah. abrupt transition. Yes. Um, yeah i mean i i've never met sam bigman I, I should say that first off and um i should also disclose up front that uh one of his family foundations made a grant that we have since returned uh to future perfect to, to fund a reporting project for us uh, i'm glad we returned it uh i if he is guilty of uh any, of the number of things he's been indicted for it's unacceptable and and uh and i i hope he, he is punished appropriately um i think as sort of an autobiographical thing i think he and i both got interested in utilitarian philosophy and animal welfare and peter singer specifically as teenagers we both grew up in college towns uh he grew up in palo alto as as the kid of two uh Stanford law professors. I grew up in Hanover, New Hampshire. My parents were not professors, but um it's a college town. Everyone's affiliated with Dartmouth in some capacity. Um we just like seemed like we came from similar milieus and um encountered similar influences. Um obviously his took him in a very different direction. I think if we're pointing to disanalogies, um I hope he is much less honest than I am. I don't think I'm remotely that dishonest, but it's obviously a hard thing to say about yourself. Um, he's much better at math than I am. And I think that contributed to him going to MIT, learning or mathematical finance, going to work at a hedge fund, having this idea to start his own exchange and hedge fund. Um, and so I think that's a specific skill set of his that pointed him in a certain direction that I was not pointed in because I've never been particularly good at math. But yeah, I mean I think there's it's it's a, a sort of mainstream idea now in some in some ways because of Sam Beckman Fried. But um I started talking to sort of self-identified effective altruists in 2012, 2013, when the term had just been coined. And it's uh it was it was unusual to see a wealthy person who seemed so aligned with the stuff that i cared about and i think that was that was true first and foremost about dustin moskovitz uh who uh funds the open philanthropy um group uh that that now before sbf and now again after sbf is uh the most uh most important donor for effective altruism causes um it was just unusual to hear someone try to say like i'm, I'm trying to, to maximize welfare that i'm defining these ways um, i'm trying to to focus all my philanthropic effort at that um i spend a lot of time writing about and 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 looking at the strategies of more conventional foundations like ford um even gates the, the gates foundation i think is is way above average at this they just like don't have any formal strategy to think of it's like i'm interested in this thing and also this other thing and also this third thing and there's no rationale for why i care about all these things or and nothing that ties them together um and i don't really have a function i'm trying to um to to maximize uh or or some overriding philosophy it's just uh these are the things i've decided i'm interested in um so like you you wind up funding like charter schools but also like art galleries and stuff it just seemed completely incoherent and i think there was something about, about both dustin and then then sbf where it seemed like they had an actual philosophy they had an actual sort of theory of the case and how to uh how to approach giving now i wish that sbf had approached that with money that he had uh earned uh properly and had not stolen from people <laughs> um but i suppose you can't get everything
0: yeah, unfortunately, you can't get everything. But that, like, because you were looking at a lot of the different foundations, and I think that's that's an, a very important thing to unpack. Uh, but anyway, could you talk a little bit about, like, how a lot of the time, influential movements, not just EA, but anything like that tries to imprint its mark on the world often requires funding from rich people and both the pros and cons that come with that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... I think this is a particular, like, so I think a lot of, a lot of change in society comes from not-for-profit institutions. Um, And I think that's less common outside the U.S., but it's definitely the way stuff works in the U.S. Um, And that's been true for a very long time. Um, This goes back to sort of Tocqueville's observations about the structure of American democracy as as associational and based on um, sort of people affiliating with each other and then, You have to sort of raise money for that that affiliation i think one of the the early cases that i've i've done some reading about is um sort of the networks of of abolitionist funders in the 1850s that um there were business lobbies there have always been business lobbies and the slave power was was the term that abolitionists used to refer to the the slavery lobby uh slavery lobby um that plantation owners were organized and and used their wealth from from slavery to to argue for protections for it um but to defeat that you needed some some segment of wealthy people who were willing to give up some of their wealth to fund speaking tours by people like frederick Douglass, to buy guns to send to to kansas during bleeding kansas to buy guns to send to john brown when john brown uh, attempted an insurrection to end slavery. Um, and in practice, that came from a handful of, of people. Uh, I think Garrett Smith is probably the most famous of them, but a handful of, of Northern industrialists uh, who were very wealthy and cared passionately about ending slavery. And I think it's hard to tell a story where the Civil War ends in abolition without them kind of setting the stage. Um, and that's, I think, been true throughout history that, um, there are always business lobbies. And so sort of policies that are friendly to business and to to wealthy individuals always have this kind of built in advantage. Um, but there's, uh, there are always people who, who object and say no, and those people wind up needing money. And there have occasionally been, um, occasionally ways to get that money without sort of foundations or individual wealthy donors so i think unions are the, the biggest example of this um there was a at their peak when a third of americans were in unions um the afl-cio had enough money that they could fund sort of uh operations on a number of 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 issues and not just on ones directly relevant to unions but they um, they had things like the Solidarity Center, which was was funding activists trying to to fight communism and and fund anti communist unions in the Eastern Bloc. So that was a model where instead of taking money from a handful of wealthy people, you could uh, sort of assess a flat tax in the form of of union dues, and a segment of it would go to funding uh, means of funding this infrastructure for social change. Um, that that didn't require a handful of wealthy individuals, but I think private sector unions, last I checked, were like six or seven percent of of private sector workers in the U.S. Like unions are are if not dead, then like in the late, they're in hospice in the U.S. Um, they don't have the resources to fund this. They're they're like barely staying afloat, the money to keep themselves afloat, so they can't be the main backers of think tanks, uh, grassroots groups, uh, uh, media outlets, the things that you you need to fund to get a movement off the ground. Um, so in their absence, there are a minority of wealthy people and foundations that like to fund this kind of thing. So George Soros is the most famous and, and frequently villainized but there's also the Ford foundation. Uh, the Rockefeller foundation will do some stuff on this. The Hewlett foundation has become very active. They have this whole sort of beyond neoliberalism idea. Um, uh, I'm probably forgetting some, some important left of center foundations, but, uh, but they've really become critical. Like if you look at who funds left-wing think tanks, publications like the American prospect, uh, or, uh, democracy journal or, um, Mother Jones, uh, who funds, uh, advocacy groups like next gen that do either election or or grassroots organizing. Um, it's really heavily coming from a small number of foundations. And I, I think it's, it's common. I think Anand Giridharadas deserves some credit for making people sort of stare at this reality a little more clearly. Um. But it's common to look at this and say, like, this is this is kind of messed up. Why do we we need to rely this much on on a handful of wealthy people? To which the response is like, well, what what else are you going to do?
0: So, is it like a necessary evil?
1: I don't know that it's strictly necessary because there might be people who come up with other ideas for how to to fund progressive infrastructure that that I haven't thought of. Um, and I know there are people who are trying to do that. There are people trying to start like alt labor groups. Um, uh there's this company called Credo that like sells cell phone plans and uses the profits to fund progressive stuff um so i don't know that's the only way in practice i don't think anyone has come up with a way that that scales uh to the same size that can can fund the things people want to fund so i i think as of right now i don't I can't think of um, a structure that we could easily transition to um, that is less reliant on a handful of foundations and and individuals.
0: What about a larger amount of slightly smaller foundations?
1: That's possible. I mean, that's sort of a change that's happened in Mm -hmm. the way that campaigns fund themselves, that there's been a shift to small donors from, from large donors. And I think Bernie Sanders deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, and it's possible that you can get small donors excited enough to give money to the center on budget and the prospect and resurrecting acorn and, and other grassroots groups, um, funding the sunrise, uh, sunrise movement. It just hasn't happened yet. And I think there's smart people trying to work on that. Um, but, but as of, as of right now, um, those institutions, I think you know, tend to rely on uh, those are sometimes called contributors and, and there are certainly sort of subscribers to the magazines and and contributors to the think tanks who can give small amounts but it's uh it's costly to run that kind of a fundraising effort and it's easier to get large large grants from a small handful small handful of groups
0: um so i guess um you you quoted freddie de boer a little bit um, which i thought it was interesting in terms of his take on effective altruism so to quote him The correct ideas of EA are great, but some of them are so obvious that they shouldn't be ascribed to the movement at all, while the interesting provocative ideas are expletive, insane, and bad. So what do you think of the idea that when it comes to effective altruism as a movement, and also like obviously the debacle and the aftermath of all the SPF stuff, like how much of the like the justifiable criticism against the movement comes in terms of funding and how much of it comes in terms of an overemphasis on like the the like the inf- interesting or provocative ideas where like interesting might be a euphemism
1: yeah so i mean i think part of what he's responding to there is is ai risk and the idea that so you should care a lot about things that might lead to extinction and that ai risk might lead to extinction i think that's in some ways the weakest section of the movement i think it's plausible but also also, quite possibly wrong. Like, I think it's possible we we develop advanced AI and everyone's fine. And the AI movement was just incorrect about that. In in which case, that will be a, a a really fair hit. I think I really disagree with Freddie that the the quote unquote obvious ideas um are commonplace and, and not worth emphasizing. So, I'll give an example, um, and and hopefully he will find it provocative enough. So an important idea I've gotten from AA is, is something called scope sensitivity, that you should really care about like the order of magnitude of people affected by something. Um, that something that affects sort of 10 million people or a disease that kills 10 million people a year, you should care roughly a hundred times more about than a disease that kills a hundred thousand people a year. And it's hard to do perfectly, but I think it's, it's, it's an important and intuitive goal. No one embraces this at all <laughs> in, in, uh, in ordinary sort of U.S. politics. Uh, the day we're talking, Gavin Newsom, who's the, the governor of California, America's largest and most important state, has launched a campaign to add a 28th Amendment to the Constitution uh, limiting guns used in mass shootings. By the most expansive definition, uh, mass shootings kill a couple hundred people a year. And that's awful and the correct number is zero but like the idea that this is like anywhere near the top priority if you want to save lives in the united states compared to sort of finishing the job on covid vaccination uh expanding access to health insurance uh getting lead out of of pipes um improving air quality um The idea that this should like take up a fraction of the space that should be spent on those ideas is is ridiculous the progressive movement is is structured such that guns and gun control is really really important and air quality just like isn't um and i think that's really really bad and i think it's really really bad for for basically ea reasons and i think that is incredibly non-obvious and there are probably people who will listen to this and be like offended at me downplaying um the importance of mass shootings but like I think it's important to downplay them relative to other things that kill way more people. And an important contribution of, of EA ideas is to sort of force people to think about those questions. Now, maybe Freddie will say that's the expletive insane side of, of, uh, of EA ideas, but I, I think it's a correct side and, and, and one that I think influences how I, I choose to, to prioritize and think about issues.
0: Dylan Matthews, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. It was an honor.
1: Um, No, it was was an honor to be invited. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.